Won't large RIAs have the same challenge in compliance departments as broker-dealers? That is today's question on the transition to RIA question and answer series. It is episode number 82. Hi, I'm Brad Wales with Transition to RA, where I help you understand everything there is to know about why and how to transition to the RIA model. If you're not already there, if you head on over to transitiontoria.com, uh, you can find all of the resources I make available to help you better understand the RIA model. Uh, this entire series is video available in video format, podcast format. I also have articles, I have white papers, all kinds of resources, again, to help you understand the RIA model. Again, transition to RIA.com. Okay, with that, on today's question, and I want to start by kind of explaining what I mean by this question, so to, to kind of read it back, it's, you know, won't large RIAs have the same challenge in compliance departments as broker-dealers? Uh, and I'll tell you, I struggled with how to word that to try to keep it concise, still make the point I'm trying to make with this episode. But let me extrapolate to begin with of, of kind of what I mean by that. So fair or not, right, there is the perception, the reality, however we want to look at it, that at the very large broker dealers, compliance is often considered, thought of, or, or in reality is, you know, a hindrance to the financial advisors out there trying to do their job. Of course, you know, there's all kinds of jokes about the compliance being the, the anti-business department or whatever the case is. And, and I think some of that's overblown at times. Some of it's very valid criticism. And it can be very hard for a financial advisor to be able to work with their clients and do their job if there's an overbearing compliance department pushing new procedures on them or onerous tasks they have to do. And so what we're going to be talking about today is Okay, if that's such an issue for large broker-dealers, well, if you were to go and join an RIA and that RIA itself grows to be very large, won't that RIA have the same problem that these broker-dealers have? So that's what we're going to dive into uh, a little bit here on today's episode. Uh, but I would start by saying this is not, uh, my intent here is not to not to dunk on the compliance department or dunk on the compliance people. Again, that, that is a very important part of our industry. It's a very uh, necessary part of our industry. And quite frankly, they're providing a, a, a noble kind of cause of, of what it takes for this industry to operate because the reality is, uh, even though 99.9% .9 or whatever the math is, of financial advisors are highly ethical uh, professionals, there are bad apples anytime you get a large of a large enough group of people in any profession, there are going to be some bad apples. So the compliance apparatus is meant to try to identify those bad apples or keep those bad apples from being able to do bad things for clients. So uh, it is a necessary part of the industry. The question is what's the what's the best way that you can you can kind of interact with it, operate with it. Uh, I've done a number of episodes, if you haven't seen them, discussing how compliance works in the RIA model. I encourage you to check those out uh, to, to kind of dive further into that topic as well. 
Um, but again, on this grounds, just as a preface, didn't, didn't want to say I'm dunking on compliance. In fact, I even started 20 plus years ago when I started in this industry. I worked for a couple of years in compliance, learned the business. Uh, so this is not a knock on any compliance folks that might be listening along, but it is an acknowledgement of the realities of what's happening out there in the marketplace. So uh, to, to kind of right, set up why oftentimes compliance is a challenging department to work with at the large traditional brokerage firms, whether it's wirehouses or now even regionals that have thousands upon thousands of advisors, is, is the premise, right? The often told explanation of having to manage to the lowest common denominator. So what that means is if you have 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 plus advisors, again, the overwhelming majority of those advisors are wonderful ethical professionals. You do inevitably have some either just outright bad apples in the bunch uh, that are out looking to do uh, things they should not be doing. But then you also have just different experience levels. So you do have uh, industry veterans that have 20, 30 plus years in the industry. And then you have folks that are very new to the industry. And so even if they're not attempting to do things bad, just because out of sheer maybe a lack of experience at that point in their career, they're not aware of certain things you can or can't do. Again, hence compliance is there to try to put those guardrails in place to make sure these bad things don't happen. The problem is, all of that bunch, that 10,000 plus advisors or whatever the case is at your firm, all are generally managed by one set of compliance policies and procedures uh, with the idea that it is not logistically feasible to have multiple kind of different compliance levels for, for different subsets of advisors. So it's not like, which, which it would be great if it was, you know, if, if at a large firm, oh, advisors with 20 plus years experience would have one set of policies and procedures and, and folks between 10 and 20 have another and folks under 10 have, have a third. You know, that it's just not feasible from a logistical standpoint for broker dealers to, to apply that sort of compliance apparatus. So what they do do is they set one set of guardrails for all advisors on their on, at their broker dealer to have to follow. And because they are looking for the bad apples, they are looking for the less experienced or the things that the less experienced advisors might not be aware they can't do, whatever the case is, they have to manage, as they say, to the lowest common denominator. They have to put in policies and procedures and guardrails so tight to keep those people aligned. And the challenge is they don't know, again, except for maybe the experience level. It's not like the bad apples raise their hand and indicate what they plan to do with clients that they shouldn't be doing. The compliance teams don't know who those folks are, and they can always speculate what they might attempt to do. So again, they have to put guardrails in to squeeze those folks. But the problem is everyone else gets squeezed by the same policies and procedures. Again, they are squeezed down to the lowest common denominator that's ultimately what creates a lot of frustration for advisors, a lot of challenges for advisors is why can I not do something that I'm trying to do? Why do you make me do some seemingly onerous documentation for the 100th time or whatever the case is? Again, it's it's not because you as an advisor with maybe your experience level and years in the industry are, are going to do something incorrect. They're, they're not necessarily worried about you, but they're saying, hey, Everyone has to play by the same rules, so you have to do all these tasks as well. That's oftentimes what leads to a lot of the frustration. So, 
pivot to our episode. So uh, as I talk about a number of times, there are different ways into the RIA model that you might consider if you were to transition into the RIA model. That's something I help advisors think through. Um, and it's unique and specific to each advisor. So for some of you, you might open your own RIA and there's pros and cons to doing that. Uh, and some of you might join an existing RIA and there's pros and cons to that. And then there's even some flavors in the middle I've talked about before. But the idea is, if you were to join an existing RIA platform, and there's some wonderful, wonderful value propositions out there uh, with all different kinds of solution sets, price points, all those sorts of things. And again, that's where I help advisors with this, understand what those are and who those players are. Uh, but if, if you were to join one, there might be a concern that, oh, wow, while this is maybe great now and, and look at everything they've done and, oh, this is so much easier than I have it over at the broker-dealer world. Uh, they are so much more supportive, uh, blah, blah, blah. Well, as they continue to grow, won't they just grow themselves into the same thing I'm trying to get away, away from this same issue of compliance, this same lowest common denominator? Uh, and I think that's a fair thing to ask, but I, what I wanted to go through here in a couple of examples is why that won't be the same issue that it is in the broker-dealer space uh, and I think you'll understand why. So a couple examples I just wanted to give of what makes uh, managing compliance in that broker-dealer environment significantly harder for the compliance teams than in the RIA space. And when it's harder to, to manage, it's harder to manage the risk, uh, broker-dealers in turn have to put more and tighter guardrails in place that just won't be applicable or aren't applicable in the RIA space. So even if you grow the headcount of advisors at a particular RIA, and even if you want to say, oh, well, in that setting too, Brad, there's going to be this lowest common denominator. But the reality is the guardrails don't have to be as tight for reasons I'm about to give examples. So in no particular order, but I just wanted to talk about some of the things that are present in the broker-dealer space from a compliance perspective that are not applicable in the RA space. And these are generally some of the topics that create the most issues, the most compliance issues, create the most risk, result in the, uh, the most client complaints, result in the most regulatory issues for broker-dealers that just don't apply in the RIA space. So a couple examples. So number one is the idea of churn-in. So right, churn-in is the idea in the commission broker-dealer world where you perhaps are an advisor, a broker in this sense, just use proper technology, even though I'll kind of refer to advisors across the board generically as, as advisors. But the idea being that in that broker-dealer world, you could you could decide to do trades, perhaps arguably beyond what is necessary for a client at a given time, because placing those trades will result in a commission. Again, this is in a commission setting, will result in a commission to the advisor. So as the advisor, the more trades that uh, are done, the more income to the advisor, arguably, right, a conflict of interest. And the idea is, and it's been an issue over time, is are there bad apples out there that will do uh, more trades than are needed, excessive trading beyond what is arguably needed to generate themselves income? It is clearly has happened in the past, continues to happen in some instances, in part because that's hard to monitor. At what point 
this the level of trade-in go beyond just what's prudent for the client, which of course the advisor always claims is the case or the bad apple always claims is what's going on. Uh, at what point does it go beyond and now become an issue with churning? So again, guardrails have to be put in place to monitor for this thing, track for this thing, document why things are happening. Uh, and it does happen. In the RIA space, there is no such thing as churning uh, because the only way the advisor is paid in the RIA space is by the client. So just to give the proverbial 1% of AUM example that the client pays the advisor 1% to manage the account. Whether the client, whether the advisor does one trade in that account in the year or 200 trades in the account that per year, it doesn't generate the advisor any additional or less income. So there is no issue of churning in the RIA space. And so hence, the compliance teams do not have to put guardrails in place to try to squeeze uh, down what, whatever the policies are related to trade-in and documentation, those sorts of things, because it's just not applicable. You take that issue out of the equation, again, compliance can be a, can be a softer hand in how it's being applied. So number one is, is example is churning. Uh, the next one, and again, if you were to look at, by the way, historically, uh, a lot of what the main issues are that are, that are results in client complaints, arbitrations over the years, these are usually some of the main topics that are mentioned. Again, these are these are relevant in the broker-dealer world, not applicable in the RIA world. Uh, so the next one I want to talk about is there's just related to kind of commissions and trading. In the RIA world, there are no commission products at all, let alone large commission products. So a argument often made in client complaints is that a in a commission broker-dealer environment is that a particular investment solution was was recommended to the client or utilized with the client because the advisor the broker would see receive a large um, oftentimes upfront commission so right often associated with variable annuities this is not a knock on variable annuities this is not to say variable annuities are not a good tool to use with clients in certain instances but it is what it is when you have a product that pays a large commission percentage wise uh, and, and oftentimes the largest of the available solutions that a commission broker could utilize with clients, it does draw the bad apples to those to those products. And, 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 and perhaps that is the motivation of why an advisor is suggesting it to a client. Again, when it's appropriate for the client, there's nothing wrong with using those products, even if it pays that commission, even if it happens to pay the larger commission. But you can understand why the bad apples gravitate to that sort of thing. Again, broker dealers have to put in a heavier hand, heavier guardrails to try to get their hands around that sort of thing. Another related to variable news is where you see variable news being exchanged. So a client has an existing variable annuity and the broker explains, and again, it could make sense, oh, because of changes in interest rates or, or, or VA features, that hey, you should no longer be in the one you're in. Let's exchange you and put you into another, which, by the way, of course, generates the, the advisor uh, a, a, an additional commission. Again, oftentimes an additional large commission. Again, could be appropriate times to do that, but absolutely is a magnet for some bad acting uh, by some of the, uh, the, the bad Apple advisors. Over in the RA space, this doesn't happen at all. This doesn't apply at all. Now, you can actually, there are a growing preponderance of, Fee-based variable annuities, which pay up again, the, the advisor is just still being paid kind of a level fee for 
for utilizing the product and, and, and over time advising on it. But this just doesn't happen. So there's there is no uh, incentive for the advisor in the RA space to be recommending a variable annuity because of some increase in compensation the advisor would have. That's not applicable in the RA space. So you don't have to have that heavy hand of certain investment products, get extra scrutiny, extra policies and procedures, extra documentation having to be done. It, it's not applicable. The advisor in that fee only world is getting paid directly by the client, maybe that 1%. And whether they use a, a fee-based variable annuity with them, whether they use mutual funds or ETFs or equities, whatever they invest that client in, it doesn't make any difference to the advisor's compensation. So again, there's not these perhaps motivations and things that would gravitate bad apples to do certain things. So compliance doesn't have those issues. They don't have to put in those tighter guardrails as a result of that. So large commission products, another example that just does not apply in the RIA space. Um, kind of related to that, the next topic, and I'll, I'll just do this one quickly because it's kind of related to variable news is, is uh, again, with variable news, you also have a potential that, oh, you got that big, large upfront commission, but as a result, that particular product, perhaps a variable annuity, has a long lockup period now. The client is locked into that product, and if they want to leave it or, or liquidate sooner, if they even can, there's often penalties associated with that. And so that can generate a lot of client complaints and issues because a client maybe two years into a seven-year penalty period for a variable annuity would, will claim, oh, I, it was never explained to me that there would be this lockup period, I need my money. And so now there's a client complaint, there's an issue. And again, that raises costs, risks for a broker dealer. So just like with worrying about commissions, they also have to worry about lockup periods and, and those sorts of things. Again, not applicable in the RA space. If you use fee-based versions, there's generally not any lockup periods with variable annuities because the reason that lockup period generally exists is because, and understandably, this is just math, for the, the broker, the advisor to receive that large upfront commission, the variable annuity product provider has to be able to recoup that initial essentially investment of, of paying the broker. And so that's where they they, they have the uh, expense ratios, of course, involved. But then the, the, uh, the investor, the client has to stay in that product for a period of time to, to be able to make up for that math of that large upfront commission. Again, not applicable in the RA space. You don't have these worries about clients complaining or potentially complaining about being in solutions that have long lockup periods, well, at least if they if they do exist, it's not because there is any motivation for the advisor to utilize a product. And as a result, it had a larger uh, lockup period because of some advisor compensation arrangement. Again, not applicable in the RIA space. Um, the next example is in the broker dealer space. Oftentimes you'll You'll, you'll hear that or look at ratios such as ROA, return on assets. So for a commission-based advisor, one way you try to get around a concern about churning is you say, okay, well, what is the, the ROA of that advisor on that account? So what that means is if you add up all those commissions, whether it's whether it's mutual fund trades that are paying a load or maybe um, equity trades back in the day that had a commission, you don't see as much of that anymore, but it does happen, fixed income trades, whatever the case is, you add up all those commissions and you divide that math by the asset uh, level and you say, well, what is that ratio? What is that return on assets? So again, the, 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 the kind of comparative is in that RA space, if you're charging 1%, uh, the level fee of 1% on the client's assets, again, that's essentially the return on assets. The ROA is 1%. So you, 
over in the uh, broker dealer where you have to monitor for that sort of thing because if that gets to one percent okay well that's a uh based on commissions that's that's we could all agree a generally acceptable amount of compensation again no one questions the one percent level in the fee-based world uh but what happens if it gets up to 1.25 1.5 all of a sudden you're up to two again now are you into that churning environment but that, but you're also even if you want to attempt to justify oh these trades were all necessary it just so happens to be the math comes to a two roa well that doesn't necessarily mean a client's not going to complain about that or your attorney's not going to claim excessive churning or whatever the case is so again compliance departments compliance teams have to worry about ROA of a client's account and and is that churning is however that math is adding up is that an issue so again let's put policies and procedures in place let's put guardrails in place to make sure we're not going to have any issues on the ROA aspect of it well again over in the RA space that's a moot point it doesn't matter you're just charging again whether it's one one percent and sometimes it can be more than one percent I'm not implying that's a ceiling but the idea is it's level the client acknowledges the client knows ahead of time exactly what they're going to be paying. And then the advisor is not motivated one way or the other to do invest in any particular way. That 1% or whatever the percentage is, is not going to change. There's nothing to monitor from the compliance teams in the RA space. Once that fee is set over the broker dealer space, again, that is a constantly, that ROA is constantly being adjusted based on what's, what's occurred in the past 12 months in that client's commission account. So, that's an issue. That's things they have to put policies and procedures in place over. Uh, uh, two examples left. Uh, the kind of and this is a bigger topic. I won't dive too much into it. But in that broker dealer space, you also have most uh, quote unquote advisors at the large wirehouse firms or, or what we just just referred to as broker dealers are actually wearing two hats, right? So they have a broker dealer hat. They have their Series Seven hat on in some capacities. And then they're also wearing their investment advisor representative hat. Uh, they're under the RIA in, in other scenarios. Uh, and that's so that they can offer where it makes sense, commission accounts for some uh, clients and fee-based accounts for other clients. And sometimes it's a mix of the two for, for the same client. Um, and, and that exists in the RIA space as well, where, where someone I've taught, do, done episodes on this, you do not have to be 100% fee only in the RIA space. There are ways to still accommodate uh, oftentimes legacy commission business in the RA space that does require a broker dealer. So that dual hat does happen still, but there are a large portion of RAs that again are advisors that have moved to that 100% fee only. And when you can move to that 100% fee only, it eliminates that dual hat scenario because with that dual hat scenario and with if you're at a large firm, they have to another guardrail they have to put into place is. Well, how did you decide whether to put a particular client into a commission account or a fee-based account? And then by the way, over time, should you reevaluate that decision? Should it go one way or the other? There's all kinds of additional uh, kind of policies and procedures based on that. There's regulations that have come along based on should you do it one way or the other? Again, you eliminate that when you say, hey, the only way I operate is the fee-only model. It's very transparent. Uh, conflicts, uh, conflicts of interest are disclosed. The fee is disclosed. I'm not paid any different as the advisor. It is always the same. Again, we'll use example 1%. That makes it a lot easier. If Again, if you're not wearing that dual hat, again, many RAs, those still are. So that, that, that issue is not entirely moot, but it is possible if you wanted to, to get to the point where you're 100% fee only. And then that eliminates it altogether. 
as long as you're at one of the large firms, again, some of these firms, I did a whole episode on this, you're starting to try to build out uh, so-called IAR only channels where that would sort of apply, but there's still all kinds of compliance kind of legacy approach to things that don't really free up those guardrails. But just another example where that dual hat scenario does create more issues for a broker dealer, does create more guardrails to have to be put into place. Uh, and then the final example I'd give is just in that commission world, uh, and, and thankfully because of some regulation over the past couple of years, we've, we've seen a lot of this go away. Uh, but it's the idea that there were back in the day, you know, there were, there were sales contests or that there were pressure to push certain kinds of products and hey, whoever could sell the most of this product got an extra bonus for the month or, or whoever uh, generated the most commissions of this product gets recognized in some some fashion. A lot of that has gone away, thankfully, because of some regulation, but but there's still probably some of that happening informally, if not uh, just kind of uh, competition amongst uh, themselves, uh, advisors in an office perhaps is, is possible. So again, compliance folks have to be worried. Is, is there any undue influence occurring here? Is there any unnecessary pressure? Are there hard sales pitches being used by advisors and these high uh, commission products? And so again, what do they do? There are bad apples that will use high pressure sales tactics with clients to get them into the highest paying commission product that the, that the broker could receive. There are those bad apples that, that still continues. And so the broker dealer again has to put in policies and procedures, has to put in guardrails to try to identify those folks and prevent that from happening. Again, in the RIA space, it's a moot point. You are receiving your 1%. There is no pressure to use mutual funds or ETFs or annuities or whatever, because it doesn't make any difference for you as the advisor. You are paid the exact same, no matter how you invest the, the client's assets. So again, that's another issue removed that's not applicable in the RIA space. So the main kind of take takeaway from this is, Yes, RIAs, there are a large, uh, there are a number of uh, growing and larger RIAs. There's there's some that argue out there there'll, there'll soon be a, a small handful of so-called national RIAs that have thousands of advisors. And, and so it is a fair question to say, well, won't those, once they get large like that, won't they be just as quote unquote bad with compliance as the large broker dealers are? And I'm here to tell you, yes, there will, there will always be a need for compliance. There will always be policies and procedures that have to be put in place. Even if you have your own RIA, you will have to have policies and procedures. But the idea is in that RIA space, because there are so many of the main things that are issues in the broker-dealer space that create risk for a broker-dealer, that lead to client complaints, that lead to settlements, arbitrations, all that sort of thing. So many of those lead-in issues are just not applicable at all in the RIA space. So as a result... The compliance apparatus in the RIA space, even a firm with thousands of advisors, perhaps, does not have to be as heavy-handed because it's just not possible for the bad actors to do the types of things that are able to be done in the in the broker-dealer space that the broker-dealer compliance teams are after trying to catch. So I hope that gives you an idea of why, if you, if you do have any concern of, oh, if I join an RIA, won't that RIA just one day grow into what I have now that I'm trying to get away from? I'm here to tell you that is it's entirely two different worlds, two different sets of, of kind of guardrails. I keep saying that, but it, that is absolutely the case. It will always have to be a heavier hand in the broker-dealer space because of some of these challenges that are just present with the broker-dealer model that are not at all, again, applicable in the RIA space. 
So don't let that limit you taking a look at the RA model or the idea of joining an RA. Uh, again, there's different approaches, different pathways into the RA model. It's important for you to understand how each of them work to figure out which one's best for you. For some, that is starting your own RA. For others, joining an RA makes more sense. Again, that, that is what I help advisors think through. Happy to have that conversation with you as well. So as I said at the top, if you're not already there, if you head on over to transition2ria.com, uh, you can find all these resources that I've talked about. Uh, again, this entire series is in video format, uh, podcast format, I have articles, I have white papers, and then at the top of every page is a contact link. If you click on that, you can instantly and easily schedule time to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with me, whether you wanna talk about today's topic and, and what your experience with compliance or anything else is in the RIA world, and you wanna understand how that would look, how that would apply in the RIA space, happy to have that conversation with you. Again, transition to RIA.com. You'll find the contact link at the top of every page. With that, I hope you found value in today's episode, and I'll see you on the next one.